This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, The Bugle, Mumia Abu-Jamal, The Progressive, Le Show, and Common Sense with Dan Carlin with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Daily Show. Now let's talk about the WikiLeaks revolution in Tunisia. Now, some object to calling it that, but I'm going to show you why I think that is largely true. Of course, everything is more complicated, but I'll give you all the details. First, uh, what happened in Tunisia and how was it set off by WikiLeaks? Well, there was uh, an uprising in Tunisia, and it was initially sparked by uh, a man named Mohamed al-Bouazizi, a young Tunisian, uh, who set himself on fire and died in mid-December uh, because uh, they had taken away his cart uh, that he was selling and, and made demands of him, and he was desperate, etc., right? Uh, and then that sparked a lot of protests that eventually took down the government. But where did it start even before that? Well, the reason that the whole country was mad, and they knew they had a leader who uh, had been you know, corrupt for 23 years, but WikiLeaks revealed U.S. cables that let us know specifically how corrupt they were and what exactly they did. For example, in June of 2008, the U.S. Embassy in Tunisia, or in Tunis uh, particularly, wrote, whether it's cash, services, land, property, or yes, even your yacht, President Zini al-Abidini Ben Ali's family is rumored to covet it and reportedly gets what it wants. And when they saw this level of detail, it confirmed in the mind of Tunisians that they would, this Ben Ali family, the president's family who had been running it, the country for 23 years, was, as they suspected, what they call a quasi-mafia. But there was more in the cables. Uh, in one of the cables, they said, with real estate development booming and land prices on the rise, owning property or land in the right location can either be a windfall or a one-way ticket to expropriation. Now, what that means is, if the president's family likes your land, and as they have done, and as we now see through the cables and otherwise, uh, they would say, oh, yeah, no, I'm sorry. That's a beautiful piece of land, but the water department needs it. And the water department would take it for a little while, and then, shockingly, they would sell it at a very reasonable price to the president's son-in-law. Now, this happened in so many different ways. Here's another scam that they ran. They would say, Oh, you want a contract in Tunisia? Of course. Uh, first, we're going to have to you know, run it through an intermediary. Now, that's one of the oldest scams in the book. The intermediary, of course, is connected to the family, funnels all the money to the family. Another scam is we're going to privatize some things in Tunisia. But first, we will sell it to one of the family members or friends or connected businessmen, and then he will sell it at an enormous profit to the person who's actually going to run it. So that's all the different ways that they robbed the Tunisian people. Now you see these cables through WikiLeaks, and the Tunisian people get even more upset. And they go, okay, we've, we can't take this anymore, right? And once the guy lights himself on fire, the protests erupt, and it starts to devolve, or, or depending on your definition, get much better. To the point where, hey, look at that, we've got change in Tunisia. There's at least one country with some change. Uh, what happened was the president was deposed. Uh, we had uh, Zine al-Abidin Ben Ali step aside. 
uh, and then his prime minister Mohammed Ganoushi took over. Ganoushi was connected to Ben Ali. Well, now the latest development today is he has basically stepped aside. Now he retains his post as do several top ministers connected to Ben Ali. But uh, Faoud Mabaza, the parliamentary speaker, becomes the interim president. The, in other words, a person in power. The prime minister gets his role, but the president's really in charge. And the president and some of the top uh, people in the government now are with the opposition party. So it is basically a revolt that worked. Now, of course, the people uh, in the streets would have preferred that those top uh, officials that were connected to Ben Ali not be in the government at all, that they step aside. And the fact that they are still there, including the prime minister, of course, is dangerous, right? But it is a revolt that largely worked. And it was amazing, right? And it was precipitated by a desperate but courageous young man who unfortunately set himself on fire because I, I think that's, of course, I think that's crazy. I, I wouldn't do it, but I'm amazed by it. But it did precipitate these series of events. So now the only people who say, oh, WikiLeaks had nothing to do with it, are people who don't like WikiLeaks. Because, I mean, given this fact scenario, if you think uh, that WikiLeaks cables revelations about what the Ben Ali family was doing specifically, including, by the way, their interest in import-export business, the media business, internet providers, telecoms, banks, shopping centers, and property development, if you think all that had nothing to do with it, well, you're being absurd. You're only doing that because you don't like WikiLeaks and you want to protect governments. Now, this is why I love WikiLeaks, because they do not protect the government. They are not in bed with the authority, whether it's the United States government or the Tunisian government. They tell the people what is actually happening in their government. And if the people choose to take action, great. They have in Tunisia. And uh, I, look, it is doing, in my opinion, the world a great service by giving real transparencies to governments all across the world. was reading from a sign that was held up in protests this week. Go already. My arm is starting to hurt. <laughs> that sign was held up by a protester where? Um, Egypt? Yes, in Egypt, yes. <laughs> so, um, tough week for King Tut as he lost yeah. the title of the only Egyptian Americans have ever heard of. Now we add to that list the autocratic president Hosni Mubarak, uh, the opposition leader Mohammed El-Baradei, and whoever it was that punched Anderson Cooper in the face. <laughs> uh, the Egyptian people took to the streets to protest the repressive regime there. President Mubarak responded by cutting off their internet. That was a bad move. The people were like, well, if I can't stay home and watch baby camel cams, I'm taking to the streets. <laughs> 
Now, one of the things going on is the revolt caught the world by surprise, including the Obama administration. They had to scramble to keep up all week. In their first official statement, they referred to our friend, Hosni Mubarak. Then he was just our acquaintance. <laughs> then he was that guy, Huri or Hassan, or what's his face? We don't know. By the end of the week, the White House really turned on him. They were fed up. They delivered a blow to the regime by demanding Mubarak show his birth certificate. <laughs> you know what my favorite part is so what far? What is your favorite part? The camels, all right? Oh, I, my God, it's amazing. I, I, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, you're in the middle. Your country is in upheaval. And all of a sudden, these guys come riding through on camels. And I keep thinking, well, where do you go to get a camel? I know. It's, yeah. so, it's very Cecil B. DeMille. It's very well produced. Very lavish. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I, mean, I, I have to say that watching the entertainment shows cover this is perhaps the only amusing element of all of this. Well, what do you mean? Entertainment Tonight has been covering it. And it's as if they're watching a movie. I mean, seriously, it's like playing the embattled reporter. It's Silver Fox Anderson Cooper. <laughs> What's, to, me, to me, what's interesting is like, because uh, everybody's talking about it, so everybody's asking everybody who doesn't know what's going on about it. Like, um, Piers Morgan was interviewing Mitt Romney about the Egyptian crisis. Mitt Romney? He's right on top of things in he, Egypt. He, he can't. Mitt is on the pulse of Egypt yeah. at every moment. I mean, why wouldn't you just pick people at random to talk are, to? Are there no Egyptians left in the world? We have to talk to Mitt Romney? Well, he knows... Well, he, he, I, would, I would talk to Brendan Fraser. He was in The, the Mummy, Mummy, which took yeah. place in Egypt. The Mummy. Before I talked to Mitt Romney. Egyptian. Well, as we recorded the bugle last week, Andy, there were calls for another day of rage in Cairo, and despite the internet blackouts that, as we pointed out, had absolutely nothing to do with all the cables ripped straight out of the wall that President Mubarak was seen hiding behind his back, <laughs> that day of rage turned into a weekend of fury, followed by a full seven days of total mayhem. <laughs> now, now, first and foremost, our thoughts and best wishes must go to our Egyptian buglers. I know that there are a number of you in Cairo. We hope you're all safe. But what has happened between last week and now? Well, sadly, a number of people have lost their lives, huge amounts of people have been hurt, and somehow... Mubarak is still in some kind of power. It's, it's a miracle, really, if miracles were all achieved through mass displays of state brutality. <laughs> I don't know, maybe that's how Jesus cured Lazarus. He just kept beating him with a stick until he got up. But just yesterday, in an interview with ABC News, Mubarak said he would like to resign immediately, but fears that the country would descend into chaos if he did. Has he looked out of his window any time in the last week, Andy? The 
country's already in chaos. In fact, every day he stays in power seems to bring the country he claims to love closer to civil war. This emotional double-down is going to have to stop pretty soon as more and more of the international community look like they're about to cut him off. <laughs> he also said in another interview that he is, quotes, fed up. <laughs> and, uh... Oh, shit, he's fed up. Yeah. I, am, I have had it up to here with these protests. Uh, but maybe that will persuade the protesters, John. Maybe they'll, you know, he's playing the sympathy card. You know, like yeah. a beleaguered mother trying to control her gaggle of uh, noisy children. But he's just said, I am fed up. I'll be no supper. He's, how fed up with him <laughs> being in power does he think these thousands of protesters are who are in Liberation Square having bricks thrown at them? <laughs> Pretty fed up, he's, I'd imagine. I but you know what? I can, in a way, see his point as well, because... Hundreds of thousands of people rioting in the streets screaming your name will make you feel a bit peeved. Now, if I had a quarter of a million people outside my office chanting about how shit I was at my job, <laughs> I'd probably get fed up of it after a few days too. <laughs> but, I mean, he's one step away from just coming out and saying, come on, I'm 82. I'm 82. But maybe... Focus maybe on my <laughs> age. I'm a vulnerable senior citizen. It might dissuade the protesters. They might just think, uh, we want real change, we want genuine change, we want to sweep aside decades of corruption in the corridors of power. Oh, poor little Hosni's fed up. Oh, sorry, Hosni. <laughs> poor little Hosni. Hosni, 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 Hosni. Oh. Perhaps the uh, classiest response so far to the events in Cairo this week came from the fashion designer Kenneth Cole, who sent out a tweet using the Cairo hashtag to promote his spring line of clothes. <laughs> <laughs> Saying, and I quote, Millions are in uproar in hashtag Cairo. Rumour is they heard our new spring collection online at, and then he links to his website. <laughs> wow. I mean, look, credit to him, Andy, that takes some doing. To see people beaten unconscious on TV and say, do you know what? This might actually be a great opportunity to get people to also think about my unquestionably excellent mid-range clothing. <laughs> in fact, when you clicked on the link that he had, it went straight to the Kenneth Cole website where the spring collection is branded out with the cold, in with the new, which in some ways is a very appropriate message at this time. <laughs> it really is the sartorial equivalent of what is happening in Egypt right now. The Egyptian people want out with the cold, in with the new too, but in their case, the cold represents the removal of a brutally oppressive regime <laughs> rather than throwing out a wardrobe of equally oppressive bulky cable knit sweaters. <laughs> Yes, they're different, but they're also essentially the same. <laughs> they want a fresh, new, young government, just like the fresh, bold colours and silhouettes that are available in Kenneth Cole's new collection for men, women and children. <laughs> I, I told you, I told you, Andy, after Oakley sunglasses got so much free advertising after those Chilean miners wore them on the way out of the mine, <laughs> no brand was ever going to risk getting beaten to the punch again next time there was a media firestorm around something. And... I know that Reebok have been preparing to uh, airdrop sneakers into Yemen if it looks like there may be a run on government buildings there. <laughs> I certainly know that um, Coca-Cola did very well when uh, every time a sentence was being read out of the Nuremberg trials, the judge cracked open a nice, refreshing oh. bottle of Coke. <laughs> well, that's really taken the edge off this extremely depressing day. <laughs> I guess it's the sugar jolt. Uh, <laughs> Kenneth Cole himself apologised for the tweet. <laughs> 
saying that he never intended, never intended to make light of the very serious situation. So he never intended to do it, Andy. He just did it effortlessly. <laughs> he didn't intend to do it. It was instinctive. It just came that naturally to behave that crassly. <laughs> But, but it's interesting that it's not just uh, Mubarak who wants Mubarak to stay, but Tony Blair wants him to as well, as does Silvio Berlusconi, um, who has clearly mistaken him for a teenage girl. But you know, he does use a lot of products on his hair, and he does look pretty good for his age, but not that good. But um, Blair described Mubarak as immensely courageous and a force for good. And now, Andy, when he said that, yep. was it on a grainy video sent from Cairo with Mubarak standing behind Tony Blair with a machine gun. <laughs> with a machine gun and a suitcase full of used, non-sequential £10 notes. Yeah, or was it said of his own free, <laughs> deeply misguided will? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's such a fine line with Blair, and sometimes he can't even tell it himself. But, um, but he said, essentially the message from Blair, that incorrigible purveyor of democracy to the disenfranchised, to the Egyptian people was, people of Egypt, you don't know what's good for you, I do, because I am Tony f***ing Blair. I'm afraid you're just too close to the situation to see the full picture, but I'm Tony f***ing Blair. Trust me, I'm Tony f***ing Blair. If you want democracy, the best way to get it long-term is not to have democracy. Trust me, put your placards down and trust me, I'm Tony f***ing Blair. You're only still alive because of me. I could have nuked the lot of you. Remember that. Love lift us up where we belong, because I'm Tony f***ing Fucking Blair, <laughs> Tony fucking Blair. Ooh. Did did Blair win a bet saying that? Andy? <laughs> if he did, I hope it was worth it because there is no real other rational explanation that makes sense. <laughs> it seems that the only current people behind Mubarak are Colonel Gaddafi, Tony Blair, Silvio Berlusconi, and Mubarak himself. <laughs> you really don't want to find yourself in that foursome. No, that's true. I mean, Berlusconi said that, I hope in Egypt there can be a transition towards a more democratic system without a break from President Mubarak, who in the West, above all in the United States, is considered the wisest of men and a precise reference point. <laughs> and I guess that's got to be a boost for the anti-Mubarak protesters. If Berlusconi is saying that, you can just assume that the exact opposite is true. <laughs> but America does, they have been slightly hedging their bets, doesn't they're kind of seeing... Just make, just making sure which way that the, uh, the the wind is blowing before urinating all over their own trousers. I don't know how hedged those bets have been in the last day, though, Andy. Because if, as now seems incredibly and depressingly possible, Mubarak does somehow manage to hold on to power, it is going to put America in an awkward situation because they pretty much hung him out to dry a couple of days ago when it seemed like he had absolutely no chance whatsoever. And I don't know what any future phone calls with him are going to consist of. Just them saying, uh, hey, buddy, <laughs> how's it going? What's that? You heard we said, what about you? What, that it was time for an immediate transition? Oh, come on, Hosni, you didn't take that seriously, did you? We were just razzing on you, just busting your balls. Don't be so sensitive. You know what they say, you only call for the immediate overthrow of the leaders you love the best, huh? <laughs> Hosni? Hosni? Yeah, he must have gone through a tunnel. <laughs> What's Hosni short for? Um, I don't know, I don't know. Oh, it sounds like a, like a football-style abbreviation, doesn't it? Probably, <laughs> that's true, yeah. Just have one word written on the back of his suit. Yeah. Uh, there have been uh, reports of some serious looting of ancient Egyptian artifacts uh, in Cairo. That is it, our job. That is well, our f***ing job. It may well be. Keep out of it, Egypt. 
It may well be that the Egyptian army now have to protect the museums in Cairo from the hordes of British museum curators <laughs> offering to look after them for a while. And by a while, they of course mean the next thousand years. <laughs> Um, there's been uh, concern expressed by uh, Mubarak and by the likes of Blair as well uh, that um, the Muslim Brotherhood could uh, take advantage of the vacuum power to take over in Egypt and install an Islamist regime, the Muslim Brotherhood. Or, uh, let's not be sexist about it, it might be the Muslim Sisterhood as well. We're all equal these days. It is just as likely to be the Sisterhood who take over and install a repressive yeah. Islamist regime. The Muslim Sisterhood of the Travelling Pants. <laughs> Which doesn't seem to be what the protesters are calling for, to be fair. <laughs> They haven't, I haven't seen a lot of people out on the streets calling for hardline Islamism. But it's hard to tell from a distance, you know. I've, I've certainly haven't heard a lot of people chanting, what do we want? To be told what to do and how to live by an even more controlling regime. When do we want it? For the foreseeable future, please. The Ayatollah uh, in uh, Iran has been calling for an Islamist regime. And uh, butt out, big dog, that's what I would say to you. It's all been a bit of harmless fun, and you come in and try and spoil it. Typical Ayatollah. Well, well that's it. The, the American government have been criticising Iran for meddling in this situation, which is a bit rich, considering that is all they've been doing. <laughs> Not just last week, but for the last decade. <laughs> the US government was negotiating directly with Cairo just yesterday about when and how Mubarak should go. We really couldn't be meddling anymore in this situation, but the rule seems to be that America was meddling first. They called dibs on this situation. Audible, an Amazon company, may have 85,000 audiobooks, but they don't have my favorite book of all time, The Solitaire Mystery by Yostine Garter. It's out of print, hard to come by, and the audio version only comes on cassette tapes. So you could go to audiblepodcast.com slash best to get a free audiobook of your choice, and I'm not saying you won't find anything worth reading, I'm just saying you'll have to settle for one of the 85,000 books that doesn't contain the most fun and insightful story I've ever read. That's audiblepodcast.com slash best to be only minorly disappointed by the selection of audiobooks available. On the edge of town with a gravel sling, they're gonna wear you down until you're thin and tired, tired, tired. President Obama and Secretary of State Clinton are showing that they're more concerned with maintaining an ally in Egypt, no matter how repressive, than honoring the wishes of the Egyptian people for democracy and for self-determination. In this, they're reverting to form, because at the beginning of the Egyptian revolution, Obama and Clinton were careful not to endorse the calls for Mubarak to step down. Then Obama raised his rhetoric. You remember Robert Gibbs quoting Obama saying that change must start now, and by now, Obama meant yesterday. Well, today, now means a few months from now, and change means trying to install another government equally as pliant as Mubarak and perhaps equally as bloody. The favorite appears to be Mubarak's new vice president, Omar Suleiman, who was head of Egypt's spy agency. According to Jane Mayer, the New Yorker, Suleiman served as Washington's point man in Egypt for rendition. And he's also a favorite of the Israelis, who were in daily contact with him when he was leading Egypt's intelligence agency. If Obama and Clinton succeed in installing Suleiman at the top, they'll be squandering the courage of the Egyptian people. It's looking more and more like standard operating procedure. Look at me, look at me, driving and I won't stop. And it feels so good to be alive and on top. 
My reach is global, my tower secure, my cause is noble, my power is pure. I can hand out a million vaccinations, or let them all die from exasperation, have them all healed from their lacerations, or have them all killed by assassination. I can make anybody go to prison just because I don't like them, and I can do anything with no permission. I have it all under my command because I can guide a missile by satellite, by satellite, by satellite. And I can hit a target through a telescope. Allies of Empire? If students of current affairs learned anything this past week, it is that Egypt is not Tunisia. When the people took to the streets of Tunis in their masses, the Ben Ali clan took the hint, packed up their loot, and split. Hosni Mubarak is no Zine El Abedin Ben Ali. A former general, Mubarak is a creature of the military. And much like Pakistan, being an ally of the world's richest country has paid dividends to a whole cohort of the military, the better to protect a military dictatorship. They have grown fat and corrupt on a generation of U.S. money, and they don't want to give it up. That's why you see Mubarak's thugs beating protesters in broad daylight, lobbing Molotov cocktails at unarmed civilians, and terrorizing journalists. They don't want the bakshish to end. And those thugs? Cops, mostly, out of uniform. The problem in Egypt has never been just a dictator. It's been the dictatorship, a system of repression and terrorism, which has been supported by the U.S. for decades. Why do you think the army is so strong? To fight Israel? Libya? The Sudan? Nope. It's to keep the people in check, in fear in terror. It ain't to protect them, for the army is the tool of Mubarak and those that pay him. A recent Newsweek article called the array of U.S. allies in the Middle East, mafia states, designed to enrich families and serve the empire. The people are incidental, means to an end. But if they are mafia states, the unasked and unanswered question is, who is the Don? Further, this journalistic description while appealing, isn't entirely accurate. For these nations are vampire states, draining the lifeblood, spirits, and dreams of the people. They are parasite states, lifeless relics of a bygone era that must be sternly fought for the light of freedom to dawn over Arab skies. From death row, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. We cut the legs off of our pants. Speaking of Iraq and Egypt, so now it seems as though we're seeing the uh, wave of democracy or the push for democracy spreading like wildfire throughout the Middle East because of our invasion of Iraq or because of 
some cables being leaked that revealed corruption in Tunisia. But those 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 cables would never have been released if we didn't topple the statue of the thing with the guy. Anyway, so there was a, a period Friday when uh, everybody's TV screens that had a TV screen was filled with these remarkable images from Cairo. When everybody was wondering, okay, when when are we going to hear something from President Mubarak, and when are we going to hear something? from President Obama. In the interim, we had heard this from Vice President Biden. Should Mubarak be seen as a dictator? Look, uh, Mubarak has been an ally of ours in a number of things that he's been very responsible on relative to geopolitical interest in the region, uh, um, uh, Middle East peace uh, efforts, uh, um, the actions Egypt has taken relative to uh, um, normalizing relationship with uh, with Israel, um, and uh, I, I think that uh, um, it would be I, I would not refer to him as a dictator. Well, that settles that. The president, of course, did come out with a statement eventually. More about that next. Another episode of Clinton Something here on the show. <laughs> Clinton something, the State Department years. This is bad, huh? This is really bad. It's being a little premature. What do you mean? Well, the cable traffic I'm reading says Mubarak has a good chance of hanging on to power. I'm talking about the food here in Davos. The food's bad? What food are the Swiss famous for? Well... The cheese with the holes. Mm -hmm. And the holes are the best part. Well, anyway, it doesn't look as bad as it looked two hours ago when I was talking to the White House. Mm -hmm. They were seeing the glass half overturned by violence. Oh, you know how they are. They never want to be accused of being out of touch like... Like Bush during Katrina. That's right. Mm Mm-hmm. So they're watching Al Jazeera and they're freaking out. Oh, I don't blame them. They got this chick anchor in Doha. That, <laughs> so you're telling the White House to cool it? Among other people who apparently need to. Oh, no, look, I'm just an appreciator of talent at this point in time. That doesn't mean you can't tell me about her. <laughs> Maybe later. Yeah. Anyway, Toots, I, I wish I could feel as sanguine about the situation in Egypt. You know, my global initiative has a $2 million thing with Mubarak. If he goes to London, I got to think that... That two million is his traveling companion. Then I got a board that wants to know how I signed off on that deal without some kind of clawback provision in the event of a revolution named after a flower or a color. And, and well, we've got a four o'clock meeting scheduled. All hands. All big hands. Mm-hmm. Me, the president, the vice president, me. Mm-hmm. The chief wants to decide whether he wants to say something about anything. About Mubarak. Yeah, yeah, he should. About twelve hours ago, he should. Bill, you know this guy. He's about as impulsive as a two-ton boulder. A very thoughtful two-ton boulder, but still. Well, listen to it. I know the concerns of an ex-president running a billion-dollar humanitarian enterprise don't amount to a hill of beans in this cockeyed world. But? 
No, that was it. Well, I just think in this whole situation, somebody's got to speak up for democratic principles and human rights. Mm-hmm. And so? No, that was it. All right, look, guys, I'm just as happy not to say anything. You know, let President Mubarak deal with it as he will. We pick up the pieces afterward. But Axelrod and a couple other folks here think my silence is louder than any statement I could make, aside from death to Mubarak. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. President, let let me take the first swing at this if I might. All due respect to Dave Axelrod, as I understand it, this is his last day in the White House. The rest of us have continuing responsibilities. Now, Mubarak's a good guy. When he lacks in transparency and adherence to the rule of law, he more than makes up for in regional stability, and, and you can't buy that. Well, Pakistan sure proves that point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I get a swing at this now? I, I'm not just yet. I, I'm in mid-swing. So I think, sir, that... Whatever we say. Whatever I say. Right, of course. Should be very carefully calibrated to not make it look like you're throwing this good man under the bus because, among many other things, I understand his folks keep very good records of the extraordinary rendition people this country has sent to him. Mm. Could be embarrassing. But that would involve looking backward. We're we're trying to win the future. Hillary, Hmm? your shot. It's baseball, now it's basketball. I'm just going to talk. Mr. President, the Egyptian street is out in front of us now. Yes, there are good and sufficient reasons for us to have been partners with President Mubarak in the past. But that's looking backward, too. Mm. We've already got people in Al Jazeera showing tear gas canisters made in USA. Crap, I missed that. If we don't get ahead of this curve, the answer to why do they hate us is going to be, with all due respect, sir... Mm. You. So, we do throw Mubarak under the bus? <sighs> Sir, I just think in this whole situation, somebody's got to speak up for democratic principles and human rights. Mm-hmm. And? No, you know, that's it. Okay. Well, we're under the gun here. Mubarak's delaying his TV speech until he knows what we're going to say. What you're going to say. Right. So, I think I do both the right and the smart thing. Which is? I say I'm on the side of the Egyptian people and the Egyptian government. Yeah, we're the facilitators of reform. Yes, we can talk to both sides. We can make it happen. You know what? You know what this is? Hmm? This is us winning the future. Okay. We good? We're good. We're damn good. angst and middle-aged power. Together they add up to Clinton something. The State Department years.
In Cairo, the protests are spilling out beyond Tahrir Square today. More than 2,000 protesters blocked off Parliament today and called for it to be dissolved. And labor strikes have started throughout the country. Here we go. That's exactly what I said last night. Let's watch. What the protesters could do is, you go sit in one of those rich guys' factories for a week and don't let them run that factory. All of right. a sudden, he's not going to be too happy about that. And all of a sudden, he's going to be motivated to say, i got to change this one way or another. Glad to see the protesters are listening to MSNBC at 6 p.m. No, of course, it was a smart idea. That's why they did it. And I, I wish other people would listen to my advice as well. Look, I've been telling this administration, you've got to be on the side of the protesters. And it turns out it's an excellent argument because... <laughs> How do you like me for modesty? I've made an excellent argument. No, but seriously, look, the protesters, if they succeed, they're going to deal a huge blow to Al-Qaeda. Now, why? Let me explain. The protesters started out as young guys who were get, gathering on the Internet. Uh, Wael Gonim, who we told you about last night, he created a Facebook page, and it was called We Are All Khalid Saeed. Now, Khalid Saeed was a young businessman, and he was allegedly beaten to death by the Egyptian police. And that really riled up everybody in Egypt, and it was something that they uh, rallied around, quite literally in this case. And that Facebook page uh, wound up getting over 400,000 followers to join the original protest on January 25th. Now, when the protest started, it was the young people, it was the, it was the people who uh, met on Facebook, etc. Muslim Brotherhood was not part of the original protest. In fact, it took three days for them to announce their support for the protest, basically saying, oh, that's working? Oh, wow, that's amazing. All right, yeah, yeah, we're in, we're in. So the people telling you that the Muslim Brotherhood are the ones that are doing these protests and the one secret force behind it, it's simply not true. Protesters do not equal the Muslim Brotherhood. Now the Muslim Brotherhood is joined on a little late to the protests, but they are not the ones who started it. And other people tell you in this country, oh, Muslim Brotherhood, they're with the Al-Qaeda people and they're with the terrorists, etc. Not true. Muslim Brotherhood does not equal Al-Qaeda. In fact, did you know that the Muslim Brotherhood kicked out Ayman al-Zawahiri, that's the second guy in charge of Al-Qaeda, because he wouldn't agree to nonviolence. They wanted to do the nonviolent route, Al-Qaeda wanted to do the violent round, so they disagreed and split apart. So the people telling you, oh, it's the same thing as Al-Qaeda and the people that attacked us, it's simply not true. Now, why would Al-Qaeda be weakened by the protests? Because the protests are nonviolent. They say, hey, we're going to go for democracy here, and if they succeed, well, then the people of Egypt and the people of the Middle East will see, hey, nonviolence can work. And Al-Qaeda hates that. Al-Qaeda's whole program is violence. And you think Al-Qaeda wants democracy? They don't want democracy. But now if the protests fail, Al-Qaeda comes around and goes, oh, you see that? I told you nonviolence wasn't going to work. I told you America wasn't going to support you. I told you they were going to support the dictator. Now the only way to do it is violence, the Al-Qaeda way. That's what they'll say if the protests don't work. Now, a perfect example of that is this. It's a screenshot of a high-level Al-Qaeda web forum urging Egyptians to leave Tahrir Square, establish a new Al-Qaeda branch in Egypt, and wage violent jihad against Mubarak. Get it? They want the protesters to leave the protest. They don't like what's happening in the protest. They want to go the route of violence, and the protesters disagree. How much clearer could it be? We've got to be on the side of the protesters, and not just for their sake, not for the sake of Egypt and for the sake of the Middle East, but also for our sake, because we don't want to strengthen Al-Qaeda. We want to make it weaker. Now, with me is NBC terrorism analyst Evan Coleman. Uh, Evan, uh, first of all, let's, let's talk about... Uh, 
the Muslim Brotherhood and their relationship to these protests. Now, is it true that they're not the ones who started it? Yeah, they are not the ones who started these protests. They are involved in it, but that makes perfect sense. They are the major opposition group in Egypt. They have been involved in political protests before. They are one segment of the protests going on right now. They're not the leaders of it. All right, now, again, here in this country, there's this vision of like, oh my God, Muslim Brotherhood, it's the boogeyman. Is it true that they have gone down the road of nonviolence, at least what they claim, right, and that they had a rift with uh, Zawahiri? Yeah, look, in Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood is about as far away from al-Qaeda as you can imagine. The, these two groups are literally, each day, shoot back and forth verbal volleys at each other, calling each other illegitimate. The Muslim Brotherhood has come out very frequently saying that al-Qaeda is not what we want to do. We're against their agenda. And al-Qaeda has turned around and said, you guys are sellouts. You're traitors to the cause. We don't believe in you anymore. So look, do the Muslim Brotherhood support armed groups in the Middle East? Yes, they do, like Hamas. Does the Muslim Brotherhood share the exact same foreign policy as the United States? No, it does not. Is it al-Qaeda? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. All right, so let's talk about al-Qaeda. It's curious, they have not made a statement so far on this. Is that correct? The very first statement came out today, and it wasn't from Al-Qaeda Central. It was from Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and it was very bland. They did say, yes, you know, we support activities against Al-Husni Mubarak, but what they also said is these protests are infected with the disease of secularism, with infidel democracy, suggesting that, look, only violence will remove these regimes. These protests, it's infected with democracy, which is not our agenda. Is it also possible that Al-Qaeda is not making a statement on this central al-Qaeda basically based in Pakistan because they're on the run? Look, right now, al-Qaeda in central, al-Qaeda in Pakistan, if they want to issue a statement about what's going on in the world, they can issue it within days. They can get it out immediately. The only reason that they would be waiting right now is if it's not to, in their benefit. And there's good reason to believe right now that al-Qaeda is looking at this and saying, look, why would we stick our foot in our mouth? We don't know what's going to happen. Let's see what plays out over the next few days and then we can weigh in. Because, look, if some Something terribly violent ends up happening in Egypt, Al-Qaeda can come along and say, we told you so. We told you that protest rallies, that Demo democratic protest rallies would never remove this regime. The only path was violence. So it's the I told you so argument. And that's probably why Al-Qaeda is waiting right now and hedging its bets. And you know, I also see reports though that, uh, that they're in trouble in, in northern Pakistan, that they might be having trouble getting out tapes. Is there, is there any truth to that? They're definitely having problems, but it's not communications. The problems that they're having are financial. When it comes to issuing videotapes or audiotapes, Al-Qaeda can issue videotapes or audiotapes from its senior leaders almost three or four days after events occur. So if Al-Qaeda really wanted to say something about what's going on right now in Egypt, they've had many, many days to, to, to weigh in. They haven't. This is not the product of a lack of opportunities to communicate. It's a deliberate decision. So, look, as American administration and American American officials, Republican or Democrat, look at this. Mm -hmm. Do they see the same thing we do? I mean, do they think like, oh my God, if we're on the side of the dictator, we're kind of proving Al-Qaeda's case, aren't we? Well, I mean, look, I hate to say it like this, but if you look, look at some Al-Qaeda propaganda films, especially the beginning ones, the ones that first came out right around the time of 9-11, half of those films are about the regime of Hosni Mubarak. Half of Al-Qaeda's senior leadership, over half, are Egyptians, are dissidents opposed to Hosni Mubarak. 
Now, if all of a sudden, if the Mubarak regime was to change overnight, and we had a democratic government in Egypt that maybe not 100% in love with the United States, but one that's peaceful and willing to accept stability in the region, would that do damage to Al-Qaeda? 100%, of course it would. Of course it would. It would remove their cause, their, their raison d'etre. It would remove their reason for existence. It would prove them completely wrong, right? And it's not whether that government agrees with us or disagrees with us in the short term or in the midterm. It's that they agree with our philosophy. They agree with our system of government. There couldn't be a better case to be made against Al-Qaeda, right? Yeah, and we have to be behind democracy. We have to be promoting democratic values because otherwise we are giving Al-Qaeda the perfect opportunity to turn around and say, look, we told you, they're liars. They're not interested in democracy. They're just interested in their own personal gains. And that's what we have to be very careful about right now. We don't want to turn Egyptians against us the same way that Iraqis were turned against us because we invaded there in 2003. We want Egyptians to understand that we are in support of their democratic uh, principles and their right to protest because they do have a right to protest. Right. Evan Coleman, great reporting. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as 5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. And all day this seems we've been in between. When puppets fall, it may prove too early to predict the fall of Egypt's president for life, Hosni Mubarak. But events do not look hopeful for long-term success. Mubarak's regime has been the cornerstone of U.S. Middle East strategy. For as an Arab state, it boasts the biggest population, and as Egypt goes, so goes the region. Mubarak, who succeeded to power after the army's assassination of President Anwar el-Sadat on October 6, 1981, stood by Sadat's peace deal with Israel and has been more an ally of the West than of the Palestinians and other Arab nationalities. For his services, Egypt has been one of the biggest recipients of U.S. military aid in the region, second to Israel, of course. Despite his long services to his Western paymasters, Mubarak is being prepared for an unwilling retirement. Mubarak, a man long on Egyptian internal security, may have been undone by kids of the Twitter generation. For those devoted to this technology, protests could be staged across the country against the regime. Egypt's president may be on a rowboat, largely because of the nation's economic crisis, its gnawing unemployment problems, and the brutal, fiendish nature of the police. For several months now, pictures of people beaten and abused by cops have been flashed across the country via the Internet. But as in Tunisia, brutality and repression by police can only work for so long. Once fear evaporates, resistance grows. Egypt has served as the export destination of those who suffered U.S. rendition, whom the U.S. wanted to disappear forever. And now, after decades of acquiescence to U.S. imperial whims, 
Mubarak may receive the Shah treatment, exile, if not worse. Panama's former dictator, General Omar Torrijos, who gave brief refuge to an ailing Shah of Iran, remarked upon receiving his guest, This is what happens to a man squeezed by the great nations, said Torrijos, after all the juice is gone, they throw him away. From death row, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. There are times when history seems dead, and then there are times when history leaps to life. This is such a time, a time when people, rather than being the passive victims of history, have become agents of history, agents of their own liberation. That's what's been so exhilarating about watching the events in Tunisia and in Egypt, which represent nothing less than the second anti-colonial revolution. The first was against the formal European colonial powers in the middle of the 20th century, and this one is against America's neo-colonial puppets. It's been amazing to see the mainstream corporate media haltingly acknowledge the fact that the U.S. government's been supporting this thug Mubarak for three decades now, and other dictators like him. For the moment, at least, the empire's out of the bag. And this acknowledgement should be giving the American public a serious case of cognitive dissonance because we're supposed to be for freedom and self-determination here in the U.S. of A., and yet we've been propping up dictators. There's only two ways to cure this headache. Concede amorally that we need to keep sleeping with dictators or recognize that the U.S. empire is incompatible with our principles and so abandon it. Let's make the right choice from here on out. What am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about the way we should handle the Egyptian situation and how we should take advantage of the crisis there to proclaim this as a new policy. One of the things American presidents often do is become known for a what's called a doctrine. You know, we've had a Monroe Doctrine ever since the presidency of uh, James Monroe. But you'll hear people talk about the Truman Doctrine or the Kennedy Doctrine or the Carter Doctrine or the Reagan Doctrine. More recent times, we have the Bush Doctrine. I would like to see something that we could call the Obama Doctrine. And these doctrines are supposed to be um, more powerful than just policy. Because if you have a policy and the next president gets into the government, it's often Shifted. We'll shift policy. We have a new administration. These doctrines are more concrete than that, and you rarely see presidents violating the doctrine of a previous president. What I'd like to see Barack Obama do is take this Egyptian situation as an opportunity and pull a Richard Nixon, seize the moment, think big, gamble. Which really isn't a gamble, considering, you know, how bankrupt our current position is, and side with the protesters unequivocally change the foreign policy of the United States 
to one that supports the right of self-determination of all the peoples of the world unequivocally. The first attempt, I think, here in the U.S. post-Cold War, maybe even post-Spanish-American War era, of trying to learn from the past when it comes to supporting dictators. We've had lesson after lesson after lesson in this country that if you support dictators based on the idea that you're supporting stability, eventually the people overthrow that dictator and then they're mad at us because we supported, you know, the bad guy. It's exactly the situation we have with Hosni Mubarak in Egypt. You're hearing a lot of people say that, you know, we have to think of Hosni Mubarak here. You can't just take a guy who has been such a good friend and ally of the United States and toss him overboard. What sort of message would that send to other people that, you know, have been doing our bidding? Don't do the United States' bidding because they'll stab you in the back the first chance they get. Well, I would make the case that you only have to do that once when you change the policy and say that, listen, some of these dictators have been good friends. Hosni Mubarak kept the peace with Israel faithfully after the Anwar Sadat Menachem Begin you know, peace agreement. And he was a good ally in the war on terror. Thank you for all your help, Hosni. But when we have to choose between you or the Egyptian people, we choose the Egyptian people. And from now on, as part of the Obama doctrine, we will always choose the people. Now, what do you do in countries where the people are divided? Take a place like Iraq or Afghanistan, where the people doesn't mean anything. You have all these different factions, and you have all these different clans and tribes and even different religions. Formerly, the United States policy would be to go in and pick one of them. That's the one we like. And now we're going to provide some money and maybe some secret CIA support and maybe some NGO assistance. And we'll back you in the elections that are coming. But then what happens is eventually we incur the wrath or the ire of the people who weren't in the faction that we supported. And we've essentially chosen one faction of the people, you know, at the expense of the other ones. Just like when you choose the dictator, you do that at the expense of the people. What we need to be... You know, if we really want a game changer all over the world, but especially in the Middle East, is to be the country that supports the right of the people to determine their own future at the ballot box. And that we support the countries that are run by the people and we oppose the ones that aren't. And that if the people in Egypt want to elect the Muslim Brotherhood, that's their right. And the only thing we're going to insist upon and work towards is that the Muslim Brotherhood don't do anything to inhibit the right of the Egyptian people to continue to make the choices as to who runs the government. The problem is, is when you elect some group of people who then do away with elections. If the Egyptians were to declare their support for the Muslim Brotherhood, our position should be, okay, just make sure you don't do away with elections so that the Egyptians can change their mind in four years if they don't like the way you governed. You do that long enough and you will start to change your reputation in the Middle East. You will start to have good relations with the actual people of these countries instead of just good relations with the dictators. And that's key because you'll hear that all the time. You know, I'll propose this idea of a moral foreign policy sometimes to people and they'll say, well, what do you do with the people, you know, who are, who are the autocrats? That's a large amount of the world governments you'd be basically saying you won't deal with, Dan. I mean, look at Hosni Mubarak. Are you saying you would just ignore his government and say that a, an important strategically vital area like Egypt is just off of your, you know, cooperation list because they don't allow elections. We need to have good relations with a place like Egypt, Dan. I've had those conversations with people and here's my counter argument. The idea that we have good relations with Egypt because we have good relations with their dictator is a mirage. It's an illusion. 
You don't have good relations with the people of Israel. You have good relations with their captor. When their captor is thrown out, who will you have good relations with in Egypt now? If you have good relations with their people, eventually when they overthrow their dictator, you will be the one who's seen as the fast friend who supported them during their times of troubles and not the person who helped keep them down, which is the position we have been in time and time and time again. As a matter of fact, you could even argue that this isn't such a seize-the-moment, um, you know, think-big, Nixonian kind of move like opening up China. You could almost look at this idea of changing your foreign policy to support the self-determination rights of the people in all these countries as a logical move based on the historical evidence. Supporting dictators doesn't work out well for us historically, does it? You support a Shah over a Mosaddegh, and you get an Ayatollah. We see this time and again. So you could almost argue that this would be the first time we would enunciate a clear break from the past based on trying to try something with a better potential success rate, the Obama Doctrine. We support freedom and democracy. And do you know how the people in Egypt would react if our president got up you know, on the big screen and said, we are 100% with the people in Egypt. They need to have democracy. I mean, they would be holding up American flags in the square in Cairo and we would look like the good guys. What would Al Jazeera be saying to the Arab world? The Americans came in and said that not only will they, you know, throw the dictator out and support the people of Egypt, and not only will we not interfere if the Muslim Brotherhood is elected, but this is our policy now in the entire Middle East, in the entire world. You know, you may think that's a pie-in-the-sky idea and that really damn stability issues have to take precedent, but listen, if you're supporting the dictator, you are inherently undermining long-term stability because we all know that that's like holding a lid on a boiling pot of water, and eventually those people are going to get control, and when they do, they're going to know who helped keep them down. We've only seen it 35 times since the end of the Cold War or whatever it is. Time to learn. Time to change the policy. And this is an opportunity for a game changer in everything from the war on terror to a thousand other foreign policy issues. Uh, Jay, uh, Dave from Olympia calling uh, back in, in response to this thought, or listen to uh, the Gabriel Difference Part 2 episode. Um, and maybe maybe not for the show, but um, everything you said in response to my voicemail, I agree with absolutely. I didn't mean to disparage in any way the, uh, the uh, progressive slate program. It's a wonderful thing. You do point out, however, that that's one month. In one month, it was a half a million dollars toward progressive causes. Um, it looks like they do it about every other month. So that's, you know, that's uh, three million dollars over a year. That's that's pretty good, especially in the way that uh, progressives can uh, capitalize money um, and, you know, leverage it to do great things and, and make volunteer work more effective. Uh, in ways that uh, corporations can't. They can't take advantage of volunteer labor. They don't have that kind of passion. they got to pay for everything. So, yes, good stuff. Didn't mean to uh, sound bleak, although I can sometimes I feel bleak. Didn't mean to go there. Thank you so much. Keep it up.
Hey, Jay, this is Scott from San Antonio, Texas. Uh, love listening to the show. Just wanted to uh, call and, and thank you for putting out such a wonderful show. Uh, love times a month. Um, I guess I'm calling because I'd like to do a call to action. Um, we have a super majority of, of Republicans here in the state of Texas, and uh, they are on their way to cutting to the bone education funding in Texas. My wife and I are both educators. Um, we have been voting Democrats, uh, you know, as long as I can remember voting. And uh, I'm hoping that what's going on in the Texas legislature right now will wake up some of the people here in Texas to the fact that the Republicans are not concerned about the people uh, of this country or the people of this state even, uh, that they're only concerned about themselves and, and their friends in big business. Anyway, uh, there's going to be a rally in Austin um, for anyone involved in education in the state of Texas. That means parents, students, teachers alike. Um, it's going to be on March 12th at the Capitol. Um, there's a website, uh, SaveTXSchools.org, that's been organized uh, by educators in the state to try to get the message across that you know cutting education funding to, to almost nothing is, is going to greatly affect uh, the people in the state and the children of this state and the future of this state. Um, I know, you know, I'm speaking specifically for Texans here, but I, I'm, I'm hoping that other people around the country will, will heed this call. I know that this is not a fight that's only going on in Texas. I know it's going on in Wisconsin and, and uh, other places around the country as well. Um, so uh, I, I would hope that all educators, all parents, all, uh, all you know, manners of, of folks that are involved in education, um, which, you know, pretty much anyone with children would, uh, you know, help us out in Texas and, and uh, write your legislatures, write, write to your uh, representatives, uh, let them know that education funding is important. Thanks again for putting out a great show and uh, keep listening. Hey, Jay, it's Matthew. I'm in Providence. I just finished listening to your uh, tribute to Keith Olbermann. Really appreciated that. And I have to say, I agree with you point by point on um, your position on him. I think he was really, by and large, really a um, great contributor to uh, a lot of good things that are happening in the media now. Um, and I'm really hoping to uh, be able to watch his show that I'm sure by now you know is going to be on um, current TV. And I was looking up where I can find current TV, and I realized that um, my cable provider doesn't carry it, and I um, I emailed them to request that that they do. I've uh, Cox. I live in New England, and so um, and they wrote me back and said they're not even considering it. And I thought, boy, it'd be really good to get as many people as possible to write to their cable providers and ask them to start carrying current TV, whether it's have access to the Goldman show or anything else. I figure there's a lot of people out there who don't have a chance to watch Al Gore's network, and I think that'd be worth having more access to. So I thought I'd put a call out there to have people write to their cable providers and request current TV. Thanks, Jay. Hope you're doing great. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. Now, just to respond to a couple of those uh, uh, voicemails, 
Definitely, if you're in the uh, Austin, Texas area, check out the protest. Details for that, uh, just to reiterate, were uh, the protest is on March 12th. The website for that um, cause is savetxschools.org, and all that information is in the show notes of this episode, so you should be able to find it. And yes, I have also heard all the same indications that uh, Keith Olbermann will be getting his show on current TV, uh, as kind of alluded to by the caller. Uh, that is a network that was kind of founded by, you know, at least Al Gore, if not Al Gore among, you know, several other people. So um, that's kind of just the, the bare minimum of what is known about that. If you're interested in getting it, interested in uh, watching Elberman's show, and you don't get current TV on your current uh, cable subscription, then uh, by all means, call your cable company and say you would like it. Otherwise, I'm sure it'll be available online, which is how I watch all of my television anyways. So, of course, you can go about it that way as well. Now, I just want to give you a couple updates on the show itself. Uh, you may have heard me say uh, at least a couple of times by now that I'm producing 11 shows a month instead of 10, as I've been saying for the last year. Now, uh, and, and I, but I haven't had time to explain that yet. So before you get excited, which may be too late because if that's the sort of thing that would excite you, uh, then that may have already happened. Uh, don't get tricked into thinking that you're going to be getting any more episodes of the show than you were already. The good news is you were already getting 11 episodes a month and you probably just didn't notice. And the reason that I think that you probably didn't notice is because I didn't notice, <laughs> which to be honest, I found hilarious. Um, I don't know why I, I forget. I forget what made me do it, but I had um, my iTunes opened. Obviously, I'm subscribed to my own show so that I, it downloads and and I have like my entire archive of episodes and something made me start counting like out of curiosity. Who knows what? And so I started counting how many episodes I, I had done uh, in like January and then how many I'd done in December and November and uh, and so on backwards through the months. And I realized that with the exception of like December where I took some time off and November where there were a couple of bonus episodes or whatever for the holidays, uh, all of the other months, I've been doing 11 episodes a month this whole time and I've just been underselling myself saying that I was only doing 10. So nothing's happening to the show. The show's exactly the same. Uh, I'm doing the same amount of work and you're getting the same amount of material. I'm just uh, rebranding it as uh, accurate now. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, so, so that's the story behind that. And then I wanted to give you the update to uh, donate your account. That's the uh, the Twitter program. You can donate your Twitter account to allow me to send messages uh, through you uh, as often as once per day. Uh, but you could also limit it to once per week or once per month. And, um, and, and so the whole idea is instead of you actively having to, uh, you know, receive my message and then pass it on to your followers – uh, you just trust me to send out some high priority messages and uh, and pass those straight through your account. That's that's the idea, and I wanted to give the the update that I, I now have sixty three people who have donated, and so you're like, all right, so sixty three people will pass that on. Like that's kind of cool. Here's what that means in real numbers. Um, Without this program in place, I could send a message through Twitter and have it be received by in the neighborhood of a thousand people, people who are actively following the show. 
but with the combined power of those 63 and growing uh, number of people who have donated their accounts, I can now send the message and reach over 35,000 people. So are you starting to get the sense of the power of this thing? So, uh, you know, that's just, I mean, we're just getting started and, um, and it's really, really great. You know, I can send out a message to uh, promote the new episode. Hey, make sure you check out the new, uh, you know, fond farewell to Olbermann episode. And then people who would have never heard that before can now get a link to it and, and maybe be uh, turned on to the show or hear some great progressive programming they hadn't uh, heard before and so on and so on. So it's a great program. Uh, it's just going to continue to grow from here. So please check that out on the website, donateyouraccount.com slash best of the left. And of course, that's linked up at bestoftheleft.com. So that's about it. I'm just going to thank a couple of members. James M. signed up for a leftist membership back on February 28th last year, signed up for a full year in advance. And uh, and Michael F. signed up for a leftist membership also back on August 11th, a monthly membership and has stuck with the show since then. So huge thanks to James and Michael and all of the members and donors who keep the show going. I simply couldn't do it without you guys. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Stay tuned into the show by following us on Facebook and Twitter. And for information on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of those details are always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside, the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 11 times a month. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Fun fact.